Hello world. Well, this is Paul Waite, uh, Chief Executive of the Aspen Waite Group. And uh, I'm very proud today to uh, do this little piece announcing the launch of our new innovation website. And also this is to accompany the dedicated podcast that uh, Drew Armstrong and our very own inventor himself, David Shears, have uh, recorded for the podcast uh, for the third week of September 2019. So without further ado. So Aspen Waits have been deeply immersed in innovation from its inception. I was a director of a polymer company myself with a patent invention and soon became the chief executive, a baptism of fire if ever there was one. This experience was really like a crash course in all things innovation. Since then, we've worked with a series of inventors covering the full range of industry sectors, ranging from healthcare to waste, food and recycling. One of our sister companies is a startup renew- renewable energy business, and all of the companies we have in our foundation program are involved in innovation. So, we started off as chartered accountants in 1993. A bit of a difference, but my love of marketing combined with a natural entrepreneurial spirit has led me to continually seek to reinvent Aspen Weight so that we can offer the best possible service to the business community. I genuinely believe now that Aspen Weight are the biggest disruptors, not only in the accountancy space, but professional services as a whole. The business term disruption, one of my favourite words now, was created in the late 1990s even, in the USA and focused entirely on innovative disruption. By investing resource in innovation, businesses can create new markets and also enter an established market, either by introducing a radical new product or going about things in a very different way. So if one is already disrupting, how can one take this concept to a level not seen before? In my field, I decided that we would differentiate differentiate ourselves from those that consider themselves competitors by not only advising on innovations through, for instance, R&D tax credits, but providing a comprehensive service for innovators and also genuinely innovating ourselves. The wider service has been branded as Happy IP in connection with our trusted partners, Cresco and Coder IP in particular. After all, should we not all aspire to be happy? We now own a wide range of machinery while also being involved in areas such as cognitive sciences, including degenerative brain diseases and recycling, notably through thermal compaction, uh, where the master, of course, is David. I am pleased to introduce a live podcast we shot as part of our normal weekly schedule, but this week with a specific focus on innovation. Our presenter, Drew, interviews our greatest inventive brain, David Shearers. David is the architect of many patents and has won a number of prestigious awards. Because of the talent and resource we have, we are able not only to innovate, but also to work with our clients, helping them to innovate. My own focus is very much on the alleviation of neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm starting to build up a real expertise in this field and I'm fortunate to work with real pioneers in the field of cognitive science. Innovation created the wheel, gunpowder and the radio signal. In the years to come, the world of virtual reality will be in itself a reality. We intend to be at the forefront of technology and report worldwide achievements to you through this dedicated website. 
Thank you for that, Paul. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the CBGS podcast brought to you by Aspen Weight. Today we have an innovation special and I interview Mr. David Shearers, Managing Director of Aspen Weight in Wales. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Mr. David Shears. Hello, Mr. Drew Armstrong. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm very well and very honoured to be featured in one of your famous podcasts. Ah, brilliant. So, so yes, today we're speaking to David Shears, who's Managing Director of Aspen Weight in Wales. And I, I know you're involved with a lot of uh, different projects and things all to do with innovation. So uh, we thought um, this, this podcast episode is going gonna, is gonna to be a, a special in this area. So I thought we'd have a, a bit of a talk to you and get some insight from your expertise. Well, I'll certainly do my best, Drew. <laughs> That's yeah. excellent. Yeah, so um wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, David, a um, bit of history and background to, for the listeners. Okay, well, my first involvement in innovation was many, many years ago. I developed a new type of skirting board heater, which I patented, but because I was very young, very inexperienced and full of ego, I rushed into patenting the product and I did that too quickly. And as a consequence, uh, the patent was granted and I couldn't afford the filing fees uh, because I was pre-commercial. So that product that uh, hopefully was going to make me very wealthy didn't. It was sold to an American company who manufactured it in the US and now it's a heater that they fit around offices but that was my original invention and sadly I wasn't well advised and I patented the product too quickly. Ah, okay so, so you weren't able to actually um, own it fully yourself and it got sold to someone else? Yes well, well I owned it fully but what I hadn't appreciated was that when a patent is granted you have to pay uh, filing fees in every country that the, the patent is registered and oh. th they were very very expensive and at the time I was pre-commercial I was simply worried about obtaining a patent which I achieved but then of course I couldn't afford the filing fees uh, overseas so I had to sell the design and that's something to contemplate when patenting is the cost of intellectual property and the actual timing of the intellectual property because at the end of the patent application, there are uh, translation fees, filing fees, and these are pretty expensive and can actually uh, create a problem if the product isn't being sold. And that's particularly relevant to uh, smaller manufacturers and individual inventors. And that's why, why I'd recommend that you take good patent advice, but also good commercial advice uh, simultaneously mm, yeah it's a real shame not being like you know when you've made something that's that's groundbreaking or that has the potential to uh, make a lot of you know be used but not actually not actually be used because of lack of funding oh, oh yes and uh, again the uh, the road to riches uh, with intellectual property is is paved with potholes I, I've got a, f a few more anecdotes I once met a chap in a pub uh, who explained to me that his son had been killed by a cat's eye. And I thought that was pretty extraordinary. But apparently a number of cat's eyes are pulled out of the roads each year because they are rectangular 
and nicely fit between the tyres of articulated lorries. So if they get dislodged, that could be through frost damage, then uh, they can be flung up and there are a number of fatalities recorded. So in a eureka moment, an innovation is full of eureka moments, I thought, ah, if the cat's eye was round, it couldn't be pulled up by the tyres. So I developed a round cat's eye and that had the advantage of being placed in the road with a core drill. So it was very, very easy to uh, install and much uh, safer than conventional cat size. And I thought I'd actually broken the holy grail of, of patents by uh, producing something that matched Percy, Percy Shaw's uh, patent. And he was the inventor of the original cat size, uh, who is seen as a, uh, an icon by many inventors. So we made quite a number of these cat size, over half a million, and they were installed in the roads. What happened there is that the patent had covered every type of metal, but we'd overlooked plastic. And somebody decided to copy the idea with a nylon uh, moulding that was much cheaper than a cast aluminium product. And as a consequence, that product faded into uh, obscurity and the plastic uh, product or stud is now used at, at pre predominantly airfields. So again, advice there is, when you look at a patent, think of any type of material that could circumnavigate your design, however unlikely it seemed. And at the time I developed this, uh, plastics weren't that uh, common in, in the roads. Wow. So someone could literally take your design and change it for a different material. And if it's not, if you haven't patented that material, they could use that design. Oh, absolutely. So, oh, of wow. course, what you want to do is introduce a range of materials. At the time, I was dealing, this was in the 90s, with the Department of Transport. And I had no idea that they would allow plastic uh, moulded to be drilled or stuck to the roads. So it didn't, en it didn't en enter into... Uh, my thought. We patented iron, steel, brass, aluminium, all types of ferrous and non-ferrous metals, but we overlooked the plastic. And had we had the foresight to put plastic into the uh, design, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, wow. It goes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did some work with McDonald's then, uh, in the uh, late 1990s to develop uh, an aluminium teflon coated heater and that heater would basically fry the burgers a little bit faster than a conventional griddle or grill and that would save a couple of seconds per burger which at the time i thought wasn't that relevant but when you multiply a couple of seconds by a billion burgers of year a year it's, it's a lot it's a lot of uh, money saved and the, the design was effectively a cast aluminium plate with ribs, Teflon coated. Uh, McDonald's eventually didn't adopt the, the design, but a couple of years later, uh, and I hadn't patented the idea, it surfaced as the George Foreman grill. So uh, the actual idea entered the marketplace. I couldn't find the commercial application for it because my main customer uh, did something else, but somehow that idea drifted into the marketplace, and we know what happened with the 
uh, George Foreman Grill. The yeah. other thing, the, the other thing to remember with with this work is it takes time and it takes a bit of tenacity. Uh, I I developed a machine to melt plastic uh, waste, and the idea that I had was that a homogenous waste stream would be easy to identify and easy to recycle. Now, at that time, the cost of disposal uh, was pretty low. People just threw it in, in holes in the ground, and that was, that was what, what happened. Now, of course, we, we are more environmentally uh, conscious. We have landfill diversion strategies that discourage people from putting things in holes in the ground or, or burning them. And that particular product has uh, achieved some success with a new iteration, which is a medical machine. And what we actually do is take single-use uh, plastic products, melt them in the hospital. So what we're doing is reversing the manufacturing process. And what we have now is a nice big lump of sterile homogenous plastic that has a value. And the value is both in recycling, but also reducing the amount of traffic from hospitals uh, to recycling sites or uh, landfill sites. It eliminates the need to landfill. It eliminates the need to uh, incinerate because the temperature that we uh, pr pr produce the block at, which is the reversal of the original manufacturing temperature, is higher than the sterilization threshold. And that uh, product now was launched last year by the Welsh Minister of Health. And yes, we do have a Welsh Minister of Health. Mm -hmm. And that's now been sold into the NHS. But that's taken quite a while to find the right market, the right application and the time. What happens with many, many inventions is the inventor uh, sees the need, but sadly the market is not there. So the idea is developed prematurely. Okay, so that, that makes me think um, the intellectual property part is a very important part of the process because if you know it is, it is going to be used or there is, you know, there is a need for this kind of new product or new invention, um, but the market's not quite ready for it yet, you want to you make sure that's protected for a time when it is ready. Or, um, oh, 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 yes, absolutely. And, of course, we see emerging technologies and emerging uh, materials that haven't quite reached the supply chains yet. So uh, a classic material would be uh, graphite carbon and composites, carbon composites. Uh, these are becoming more and more popular because of strength and lightweight. So they're being applied to different technologies. I visited a client recently that's applying uh, carbon fibre technology to a new uh, range of light aircraft. And what that does, it makes an aircraft that requires far less uh, servicing because this material isn't prone to oxidisation, but it's also lighter, uh, so it'll deliver uh, heavier payloads and greater flying distances. Oh, wow. And what about, let's say, like the manufacturing costs for, for something like that? Would it be a lot, uh, would it be more than uh, metal or? Well, uh, again, it's a question of supply and demand. As the demand for the materials increase, so do the number of competitors. 
and the methods of manufacture improve, so the, the market finds its level. Uh, in the early days, of course, uh, these things carry a premium. But as, as they uh, progress, the price drops. Classic mm. example, of course, is the uh, microprocessor and silicon chip. Oh, wow. Oh, what have I just done here? Sorry, I can see you. You can still see me. Oh, no, I, I pressed a funny button there. Uh, the, the, the processor and silicon chip. So, oh, so they're, yeah, so um, they're, they're, they're dropping in price now. Oh, yeah, they've they dropped in price set steadily uh, since their use in high-volume consumer products. Uh, if you look at the billions of cell phones that are used, the billions of, of PCs, uh, the, the price has dropped quite steadily. So you, you see these anomalies that devices that would have been very, very expensive four or five years ago uh, are a quarter of the price now with the same capacity and of course we see uh, further developments with uh, uh, microelectronics uh, the the industry is now looking at uh, faster smaller uh, processors and we're looking at things like carbon nanotube technology and even biological chips uh, if you can imagine that a chip is made of multiple uh, strata and the uh, let, let, let's call it for simplicity's sake, the, the message or the impulse has to circumnavigate many, many layers. If you have a fluid, conceptually, the distance at any one point is faster and shorter. So all, all these things will result in uh, faster, uh, more efficient uh, technology. But of course, what we have to do then is bring in the human consideration and ergonomics. Uh, I don't really need a very, very small iPhone because my fingers are too big. So the ergonomics of the device has to be uh, suitable to the end user. Mm. So is this where you think um, innovation is uh, going in the UK? What, what's, uh, what, what would your idea be on that? More biological kind of um, <laughs> manufacturing? Well, we, we well, we're seeing all kinds of, of things. Uh, if, if we look at, uh, for example, uh, agriculture, uh, we, we have clients that are growing uh, produce indoors, uh, basically to produce production lines of fruit and vegetables uh, with a tier system. So mm. uh, instead of spreading out the uh, crop horizontally, you grow it vertically, so you grow, grow it on a tier basis. It's irrigated, it's uh, photosynthesis is, is achieved with uh, low cost, low energy lighting. And if you can imagine uh, an acre of land, but uh, and, and you cut the cross, cross section of land to grow a crop with its roots and its produce, you multiply the depth of the roots by the height of the crop and take it vertically, and uh, theoretically, you can grow, well, as much crop as you can build vertically. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, so, so many more than, than, than normal agriculture, normal farming in fields, a whole different way of looking at it. Well, yes, well, what you could do is bring agriculture into the city. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, you could grow 
uh, some crops at the rear of a supermarket, uh, high-value crops, uh, perhaps herbs, uh, they could be grown at the rear of the supermarket, uh, irrigate, irrigated with a closed-loop loop system and uh, replenished as needed. And that's it. And, and, and with Aspen Weight as well, we, we get to see so many of these great innovative ideas because of um, the R&D work we do. So it's, uh, we actively seek out these companies that are showing innovation. And um, so that's a great thing to, to be involved with. You must see so many different uh, <laughs> great things happening. Oh, oh yes. Uh, uh, we're very privileged because we see cutting-edge technology. Uh, a, a typical client could be manufacturing uh, an engineering product, uh, medical devices, we have one client that's working with exoskeletal suits. And these are exoskeletal suits that allow paraplegics to uh, un undertake far uh, better lives. They, they are able to uh, walk, stand, sit. They have locomotion uh, assisted by electric servo drivers on the suit. And I was very privileged to meet a, a user, one of the first pe people that had tried one of these uh, suits and that particular uh, chap was a potential Olympian uh, mountain, mountain bike rider who sadly broke his neck in an accident. Wow. And, uh, the uh, ability to use this new invention was quite life-changing for him and uh, he, he was explaining to me that his ambition was to hang by the tips of his fingers in his exoskeletal suit from the Matterhorn over a 3,000 foot drop. Wow. Yeah, the doctors just shook their heads. But uh, and I said to him, what happens if the batteries fill? Not a problem, he said. The electric actuators seize. They'll be able to pull me up. But that's the kind of thing that we look at. Uh, we look at advanced recycling. We see people recycling all types of materials because they are uh, diverting from landfill. They're following what's known as the waste hierarchy. And basically what we try to do is eliminate all waste whenever possible and ideally convert it back into a useful material dependent on uh, the, the energy cost and the uh, physical cost to do that. It's like these, these, the, these best innovations are like changing the lives of others or make, making life better for, for everyone it seems like, like what you said about agriculture and food and then these exoskeletons as yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's a, uh, innovation. Uh, it touches everybody at uh, at all time, and we we see innovation in all sectors, from automotive to uh, engineering, recycling, agriculture. Uh, we we've even had claims for chicken farms. Mm -hmm. and you might wonder how we could possibly have innovation in a chicken farm, and the answer there was that uh, despite what, what we hear, there is no benefit in ill-treating animals because, of course, they are a, a valuable uh, uh, commodity or valuable uh, crop. So mm -hmm. one of the issues with rearing chickens is that in cold, wet weather, they huddle together and that creates uh, stress. So this particular client put underfloor heating right throughout the chicken shed it was a free-range shed in which the chickens could move in and out of the shed and the underfloor heating discouraged 
the flock herding together, uh, which removed the stress. And that, that was quite uh, an innovative uh, idea because it reduced the mortality to virtually, and of course the distress for the animals, to virtually zero. Wow, that sounds like a, a great one. What, what's um, some of the biggest challenges that you, you find with these companies you work with um, who are involved with innovation? Like, what, what are some of the struggles they go through? Big, biggest problem is always lack of capital and then, yeah. uh, then also lack of good advice and strategy. Yeah. Uh, often companies are unable to raise capital because of lack of corporate governance, uh, lack of uh, stra good strategy and planning. Uh, an investor normally will invest in not only the product, but the team. And if the team isn't in place, uh, or if the strategy to attack the market isn't in, in place, that creates uh, problems. And there are many, many good ideas that don't, don't actually get over the line because they are unfundable for many reasons. Mm. And would you say um, R&D tax credits um, are a, a really a really great um, like, like tool to be able, for companies to be able to use to um, help raise a little, not raise a little bit of that capital, but have that injected back into their business? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. In, in my instance, for example, uh, developing the plastic recycling machine the uh, R&D tax credits was absolutely essential to fund the intellectual property uh, because uh, we knew that we had a product that was had a potential global reach. Uh, we had to patent it in America, in uh, the relevant markets, China, India, uh, Europe. And as a consequence, the R&D funded that patent work. And without it, it's something that we might have not been able to fund which could have prejudiced the future of the of the business mm. yeah it's a great because it, it gives it gives companies the opportunity to do things that that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise you know it's like um yeah you get that you get that be able to put it back into the business which is yeah helps those things yeah and of course that's why the scheme is uh, there in the first place uh, I, i'm absolutely certain hmrc appreciates that these funds are put back into the business, which improves the viability of the business. And of course, if a business is viable, it's paying taxes, VAT, pay as you earn, corporation tax, NI. Uh, the R&D basically uh, assists in the viability of businesses, and it's a very, very good re relief. Any company that is achieving or looking to achieve marginal grains uh, not just uh, inventing new products or processes, but improving products and processes mm. should be considering re research and development tax credits. And of course, the other thing that we are very, very good at is networking. And because of the fact that we've covered so many sectors, I believe it's over 100 now, uh, we generally will know somebody in the sector that might be able to assist. And we are quite good at networking and introducing clients to other clients, clients that might be able to assist or indeed become customers. 
and and um, when you work with new clients, do you um, do you see a pattern? Do, like, do people know enough about R and D, um, or do you think in UK business? Uh, generally speaking, there are two types of clients. Uh, the one client uh, has a specific project. It's uh, a product or idea that they wish to develop and promote, and they are completely on board with the fact that they're undertaking research and development work. The other type of client has no idea that they're doing development work, and as a consequence, very often miss uh, out on the relief because they, what they, they believe that what they're doing is uh, standard work. The acid test is, is generally, I'll ask a quiet client, what went wrong? And generally, if something went wrong, it had to be solved. And the uh, solution to the problem is more often than not the development work because the, the client or customer would not have been paid uh, for that work. Yeah, and it's, it's a constant process. Like, you're always overcoming challenges in business. So, like, what you're saying is when you're overcoming challenges, then you're probably partaking in R&D activity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I recently visited a client, uh, a very reputable builder. I asked the finance uh, manager if they had any research and development, and the answer was no. I then asked if they had any problems, and the answer again was no. I then spoke to another person, a financial director, and I said, well, I don't think you've got any R&D because you don't have any uh, problems. And he immediately recalled uh, a project the previous year in which they had remained on site an additional 12 weeks that hadn't been costed because the uh, foundation plan for the site hadn't worked. They had problems and had to develop an innovative uh, pile system to support the building. Uh, but that hadn't been uh, appreciated as development work initially by some of the other members of staff. And as a consequence, what will happen now is that they will uh, obtain relief for that work and that work has now improved their knowledge and improved their capability that they'll be able to undertake similar products in the future uh, without concern. Yeah, and it, that, that makes me think about how important it is to, to, to be getting solid advice. Um, if you know, because you could just not be thinking that you're doing it, that that's going to qualify or, or that you're even doing it in that way. But if you just get someone in the know, like like ourselves at Aspen Way, you know, like um, can can guide you along in that way, then it can it can make a huge difference for your business. Oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we're blessed with is a number of uh, colleagues who have experience of uh, business in very many sectors. Uh, I'm not an accountant. I'm not clever enough to be an accountant, but mm -hmm. I am an engineer. And consequently, I'm able often to look at uh, a situation and assess the development work. And of course, because of my trials and tribulations over the years with intellectual property, uh, manufacturing, establishing supply chains, dealing with credit, then I can generally uh, offer advice. And if, I, if I'm unable to offer the advice, I'll know somebody within the Aspen Weight Group or even, in, even amongst our client base who will be able to assist. And that's quite powerful. Uh, 
often entrepreneurs and innovators, they uh, lack contact with like-minded people. And that's something that we can bridge that gap very often. It's not all just about uh, R&D tax credit. It's about seeing our clients uh, flourish and uh, prosper. And we we, we have more or less a holistic approach. We don't just talk about R&D tax credits. We talk about uh, finance, corporate finance, marketing, strategy, even down to succession planning, uh, succession planning, uh, for example, taking taking into account things like ensuring uh, key stakeholders. You know what happens if somebody proverbially hits the tree? Then these contingencies should be discussed, and and often it's something that's the last thing on people's mind. They're a bit po-faced and serious, uh, but they need to be discussed on occasion. And of course, we bring in uh, a completely unbiased approach and we can discuss things probably more openly than uh, people close to uh, the management structure mm, like a real real holistic advice from, from kind of every angle <laughs> yeah absolutely even down to well-being if you're not mm. happy you're not productive so uh, yeah bus- business is fun and I think our enthusiasm uh, actually uh, helps. And it just made me think when you were speaking then as well about the uh, an eclectic mix of people, how how good that is. We I think this whole range of how many different clients we have and the, the different um, assets we have within the Aspen Weight team in different areas of expertise, it's, it's yeah, you, you kind of need that whole um, whole rounded approach of things to get the best out of something, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we, we can field uh, a very good team for any occasion. You've got such, such, such tremendous skills and also uh, longevity. You know, the company's been around for 27 years. Uh, we've, we've got executives that have been uh, in business and hands-on business uh, for, well, uh, 40 years. And collectively, you put all that experience together and we can solve many problems. Uh, not every problem, obviously. You know, that would be arrogant. But most problems we can solve because we've actually uh, ex- experienced it. And uh, again, uh, the road to success often has failure on the way. Uh, in the 1980s, I was probably the youngest, well, I think I was the youngest managing director ever to steer a company to a Queen's Award for Export. And I was probably also the youngest managing director to go bust within 18 months. And that's because I hadn't anticipated uh, fluctuations in foreign currency. And one minute I was riding on the crest of the wave, uh, exporting to North America. And the next minute the market fell away because of the devaluation of the uh, currency. And as a consequence, the business had to be sold to an American competitor. This still trade in today. So if you fight those battles, then you have the experience to be able to assist people fa- facing similar uh, dilemmas. It's not always uh, doom and gloom, and there is often a way out of a situation. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes the way out 
isn't pleasant, but situations often need resolution. And what we can bring is experience to try to find the best resolution. Mm. So what, what advice would you um, give to businesses that are taking uh, part in like innovative ideas and, in, and innovation within their companies and want to progress with it in the best way possible? I think the first thing is persevere. The second thing is to know your market and understand the uh, demand. You know, for example, uh, at the moment, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds being put into uh, small private jets, uh, CPJs. Uh, I believe Honda has put in uh, several hundred millions of pounds into small private jets. Uh, my observation, uh, having held a private pilot's license, is that they don't understand the market because despite, even if you have the funding uh, to fly a jet, you need the instrument ratings or employ a pilot and you need the time and the uh, weather. So as a consequence of that, we've got a market being developed that I doubt will take off, if you'll excuse the pun, <laughs> because the end user of the uh, product will not have the skill set to use it. So I can see that that is going to be uh, a potential disaster over the next few years. Uh, the idea of small private jets is quite fantastic and wonderful, but you have to have the time and the energy and the competence to develop the skills to fly them. Mm, far like better, yeah, far better to develop uh, a, a very safe passenger uh, cruiser that anybody can uh, operate uh, with, with fairly limited skill sets. So I'd say understanding the market, ask your customers and clients what do they want. Uh, often, of course, inventors are driven by ego. Uh, uh, somebody will have a bright idea. It seems uh, excellent to cure their particular problem, but uh, is that problem universal? And is there another way around it? There's a bit harping back to the better most trap, uh, which is the brick. Works every time. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. Oh, hello. You still there, David? Still there. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm waiting for some profound statement from you then. then. <laughs> I thought everything had frozen in time. <laughs> time and space <laughs> yeah, yeah no, it, no it, has, it hasn't frozen uh, yet yeah i like that idea what you said about um is is the idea universal because i think generally the more people that that something can help or an idea can help, that, that the bigger the, you know the more potential it has for for being something like world changing you know <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh, what you need to do is when you develop a product you you need to, to, to look at TAM, which is total available market. And then you need to establish a very uh, mod modest uh, target, uh, a target that will, people will believe. And there's no point in having uh, a global market of £10 billion and uh, assuming that you're going to pick up £9 billion of it. Mm. Uh, quite often, very large markets only require very, very modest uh, percentage 
success. So mm. look at the available market, and if it's huge, a modest uh, percentage and target could be a huge business. Mm. And then develop a strategy to commercialize the product. Uh, for, for example, if you are making capital equipment and you wish to sell in America, uh, market surveys are important. We have in the States 48 probably viable states, and some of those are split into uh, several areas because of the geographical size. So look for a distributor uh, chain that will reduce your cost of sales because they have existing uh, staff and uh, customer profiles that could promote the product. And with a, with a distributor st uh, uh, chain in the States for a piece of capital equipment, you're virtually guaranteed to have 60 sales immediately because each of your distributors, if you negotiate a decent distribution agreement, will have to have at least one model to sell. So look at the market, prepare a strategy. Is it direct sale, business to business, distribution, agency? All have advantages and disadvantages, but talk to somebody uh, that has actually done it. Mm. Get that advice. Get the get the best advice of people. <laughs> yeah, advice is important, and I think that's where Aspen Weight uh, can be very very helpful. Uh, the fact that we have so many people within the team that have experienced so many uh, different markets and sectors, and of course we we have people that have ha uh, business experience uh, in, in other countries. Uh, uh, we, we've got people like John Porteous, who has experience in uh, the Middle East. We have uh, our famous Jono, who has joined us from South Africa. Mm. These people all have life experiences and skills that they uh, bring to uh, the, the team. That's it. A huge eclectic mix. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, yeah. And... <laughs> It's, it's good. It's a lot of fun because we bounce off each other. Uh, we, we all have uh, different skills. And somewhere within the group, you'll find people that are able to assist no matter what the, no matter what the situation is. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the message I'd like to get out. You can, you can hear the... Um you can hear what David has, has been saying. And we have a huge amount of talent within our company. So... If any listeners need advice, anything like that, we're always happy to help. Contact us, any questions. And, um, yeah, I think I think that's great. I think we've covered a lot of stuff in um, the episode there, David. And um, what I like to do at the end of the episode as well is um, is, is, is get the, list, is get the um, people I'm interviewing to, to pick a song. So I don't know if you've been listening to anything recently. But <laughs> okay, well... Uh... I'm really into the killers at the minute. However, pick a song which is more of an anthem than a song, but it's, it's one of my uh, favourites. Uh, I like it because it's just different. And the other thing is, many, many years ago, I used to DJ, and this is quite a long record, so I was able to put it on go and get my pint or go go to the toilet and get back before the end of it. And it's it's called Faith Healer by the sensational Alex Harvey band. 
Oh, wow. Oh, brilliant. That's great. So I hope you enjoy that, listeners. And thank you very much, David, for this um, conversation. It's been very insightful. Yeah, that, my, my pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed it. Excellent. And listeners, thank you very much. And we will speak to you next week. Thanks, David. Never have to breathe. All you got to do is believe.